Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at a few types of panic that regularly strike within communities or across the nation, including various satanic panics, Halloween candy panics, and panic over kids being too inclusive and welcoming of all types of people. Clips today are from Vox Quick Hits, The Politics of Everything, American Hysteria, Citations Needed, Soul Search, and The Majority Report, with additional members-only clips from Today Explained and American Hysteria. And stay tuned to the end, where I'll describe even more irrational panic through the ages over the eternal struggle to police gender norms and the Protestant work ethic. So before we dive into the history of the satanic panic, can you explain why Satan worship seems to be on people's minds right now? Oh, I think uh, there are a lot of reasons. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of evangelical zeal in the in the U.S. lately um, and a lot of ideological polarization, which also uh, tends to breed lots of, of hysteria and social panic and moral panic. So we've got a lot of that going around. But most recently... Last week, little Nas X, uh, who you probably know from his hit Old Town Road, uh, turned a lot of heads with his his latest music video, Montero, um, which is subtitled Call Me By Your Name. In it, he basically performs his identity as a, a gay man. He's having fun in the Garden of Eden with Satan uh, in snake form. And later he goes to hell uh, and gives Satan a lap dance before killing that version of Satan and taking the throne for himself. Uh, so obviously that's a very, very controversial video for a lot of reasons. Uh, the way it's filmed is very homoerotic. It's a celebration of queer identity in a lot of ways, but it's also... It has a lot of references to classical religion, and so basically the idea is he's sort of claiming the sinful lifestyle that he's always been taught that, you know, if you if you grow up gay, if you grow up queer, you're always taught that if, you're, if you uh, perform your identity, you're going to go to hell, right? So the video basically celebrates his reclamation of his identity and his time in hell. So good times. <laughs> So, Asia, I imagine uh, people's reactions to this video were very um, measured and, and you know, polite and normal. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. Um, no, they were not. Uh, it didn't help that he also released a, a limited edition collection of Nike shoes, um, not endorsed by Nike, but they, they contained drops of human blood. Um, and he released 666 pairs. So obviously there's a <laughs> lot of, of Satanism going on there. He had prominent politicians and prominent evangelical leaders basically calling him a tool for Satan and, uh, basically saying that he's an example of why Christians are in a fight for the soul of the nation. So let's rewind for a second. Satanic worship has been around for centuries, right? But how did we get to something called the actual satanic panic? Oh, that's a really good question. It was a, a confluence of a lot of things. First, you had uh, the really shocking Manson murders back in the late 60s, 1969, which was sort of the first time um, this sort of ritualistic uh, killing idea made its way into the American mainstream, right? And the Mansons were a cult, although 
we know now that like in retrospect, the the ritual was basically a facade. It was a, a giant distraction. Manson wanted it to look like a ritual killing, you know, when it wasn't. But that idea really took hold in the American mainstream. And then in the seventies, you have all kinds of occult activity. You have the, the hit blockbuster, the exorcist, which really, really put the idea of satanic influence uh, sort of taking over our children, put that in the heads of every American. Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. <gasps> the world of darkness. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. And I think for many people, that film changed the way that they thought about the forces of good and evil, right? So then you have all that playing out against this backdrop of psychosexual evolution and the way we thought about serial killers and and murder and crime and all types of things happening in the 70s. So it seems like the 70s was full of all of this like bubbling up of creepy satanic discourse. How did that become an actual moral panic in the 80s? So in the 80s, you have basically the first official stirrings of what became satanic panic. You had a really famous uh, memoir called Michelle Remembers that's since been completely discredited, but it was this story written by a woman and her psychotherapist who uh, basically induced all these false memories from her of being horrifically ritually abused by this dark satanic cult, which obviously never happened. Um, but this was called Satanic Ritual Abuse. And uh, this book was a bestseller. And it was used as a tutorial in law enforcement to teach officials about these scary cults and so forth. Um, and it was just everywhere. And uh, it led to this phenomenon throughout the 80s and 90s, where law enforcement officials and psychotherapists would essentially interrogate children and induce all these fake memories out of them. And then they would prosecute people based on these these false imaginary accusations. The most famous example of this is the McMartin Preschool Trial, which was a very long trial that took place in California throughout the 80s. It became the most expensive trial and still is the most expensive trial in California history. Um, at one point, over 30 people were alleged or or were suspected of participating in quote-unquote satanic ritual abuse. But one by one, um, over the years, the charges completely broke down because, again, none of this was uh, was real. And the accusations were really, really off the charts. Like people were, could supposedly fly. They were ritually sacrificing children, just all kinds of things. Um, and so eventually all the charges against the, the preschool staff were dropped. And so nothing came of it, but it was this very, it was this giant uh, wave of essentially uh, modern day witch hunting. And I mean, to take it back to Lil Nas X and his blood sneakers, like he's a huge pop star. The video has like 90 million views in just a, a week or two. How concerned should we be about this like movement of people who are stoking fears about him? Is this just a fringe movement or is this something that's like going to get worse? Well, I think the danger in assuming something is fringe, that's what people thought about QAnon, right? But you only need so many quote unquote fringe advocates to storm the Capitol, as we saw on January 6th, mm. right? It's not necessarily whether or not it's a fringe movement, but how intense the activity is, right? And what people are prepared to do in the name of purging the world of, <laughs> of witches and and the things that they fear, right? When you have 
a lot of people uh, getting on board with the ideas and the ability to spread their message far and wide through social media, which is something QAnon has really benefited from. You run a higher chance of, of running into people who are really extreme, right? Um, and are prepared to go to great lengths to um, rid the world of evil. We've been talking about so-called rainbow fentanyl, brightly colored fentanyl pills, and the fear that drug cartels are using it to target kids, especially on Halloween. The sociologist Joel Best has been studying fears of poisoned or contaminated Halloween candy for several decades. He calls the idea that strangers are deliberately handing out dangerous substances or items like razor blades, Halloween sadism. And he's tried to track down cases of it actually happening. He wrote a paper on his findings in 1985, and he's been updating that paper ever since. Joel, you've been studying fears about Halloween sadism since the 1980s. When did this all start? Well, trick-or-treating is not as old as you think it is. Trick-or-treating really becomes widespread after the Second World War, and it's sort of an anti-delinquency measure. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Right away, uh, I've, I've had people tell me that, people a little older than I am, that uh, they heard people would heat pennies in skillets and pour them into the outstretched hands of trick-or-treaters. That would be a story from the late 40s or early 50s. So hmm. almost as soon as trick-or-treating becomes widespread, it's there. Wow. You described trick-or-treating as an anti-delinquency measure. What does that mean? What were they trying to stop kids doing on Halloween? In the good old days, in the first half of the 20th century, I mean, Halloween, there was never one way to celebrate Halloween, but Halloween was often celebrated by adolescent boys who would go out and commit acts of vandalism. The prototypical example, which isn't very realistic today, is tipping over outhouses and doing things like that. So there were, there were people who were always complaining that this was out of control. So some communities very deliberately said, okay, this is what we're going to do for Halloween. Halloween is going to be something that's done on a particular day at a particular hour. Children are going to walk from house to house in costumes. Householders will uh, give them treats, you know, and it was intended to make it more of a domestic thing. The whole family was involved. Littler kids were involved. The older kids were expected to behave themselves. So there was this effort to make it more orderly by having trick-or-treating, but the fears of something bad happening went back to the very beginning. You started studying this in 1985. What did you find? Oh, well, I looked at press coverage going back 25 years, and that at that moment it was 1958. It seemed to me that it was very unlikely that this was happening. So I figured, you know, the news would cover it. And I looked at the three biggest papers in the three biggest metro areas, the New York Times, the LA Times, and the Chicago Tribune, and I couldn't find any evidence of any child having been killed or seriously hurt by a contaminated treat picked up in the course of trick-or-treating. So what you see in the press is lots of stories about this, but they're all warnings and reports of concerns being raised. Yeah, you see very, very few stories. I've only found, I don't know, maybe 150 stories since 1958, where they specify a town and they specify how the treat was contaminated. And Virtually all of these stories say, fortunately, nobody was hurt. <laughs> yeah. So there just isn't any evidence that this is happening. This is a folktale. It's, it's a contemporary legend. Everybody's heard this story. You know, like the National Safety Council and so on will put out lists of Halloween treats. You make sure your kid can see through the mask. Don't have a costume your kid can trip over and uh, be sure and check the treats. 
What kinds of things are they warning against? I mean, what typically are people worrying about popping up in the trick-or-treat basket? Well, I think the theory is that there could be uh, some sort of poison or drugs or sharp objects. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up with the razor blades and apples story, you know, like we all kind of grew sure. up with that. But uh, I think some of the very few examples of this are kids doing pranks or in one really tragic incident, uh, a, a father poisoning his own child, right? Yeah, I, I think Ronald O'Brien, who is the guy that, that did that. I think he heard these stories and he thought, oh, there are lots of these. I will commit the perfect crime. I will poison my own child and no one will ever suspect me because there are all these maniacs out there poisoning kids. And in fact, the police actually fell for it for about two days. And then they discovered that O'Brien had taken out a life insurance policy on his son and, and uh, had purchased some poison. And you know, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and it being Texas, he was executed. But I think I think that that speaks to something really interesting about the hold that these fears have on our psyche or in our culture mm-hmm. is that uh, it's all it's it, we want to sort of externalize the danger to children while uh, and I think I think in a lot of cases minimizing the danger that that comes from the everyday or from at home. Sure. Yeah. Halloween is the most dangerous holiday of the year in terms of emergency room admissions for children. And the reason is that we send tens of millions of kids out into the dark one night a year and they get hit by cars <laughs> mm-hmm. and they trip mm-hmm. over their costumes and they, they stumble over the curb and they wind up getting injured. They are not showing up in the emergency room poisoned. Do you see any changes in the way this story is constructed over the years? Like, does it reflect specific things that people are scared of at that moment? What happens is it reflects recent news, usually September crime stories of one sort or another. And there there are really five examples of this. In 1982, there were the Tylenol poisonings, which occurred in mm. September. And that led to a lot of worried commentary about what would happen. In 2001, in the aftermath of 9-11, there were a number of rumors about terrorists plotting something for Halloween. In 2014, which was the first year that Colorado had uh, legal outlets for recreational marijuana, the Denver police released a video saying that you need to be very careful because these edible candies look like regular candies. And everybody got very excited about that. Hmm. And then a couple of years ago, there was a case where there were a couple of people who had died vaping with THC infused black market canisters. Okay. And that was a big story, THC lethal. And then the police in Pennsylvania arrested somebody. They confiscated some edible marijuana, which would not have been legal in Pennsylvania at that time. So it obviously been brought in from out of state. And it had, you know, was prominently labeled, labeled as containing THC. And those two stories were kind of coupled into a fear that there was going to be THC poisoning, which, of course, didn't happen. And then this year, of course, we've got rainbow fentanyl. Why do you think this idea endures? Why does it have such staying power? It just seems to circulate among people. There are a couple things going on. One is that it's a great story. You know, uh, we uh, like to worry about vulnerable children, and it's a vulnerable child story. The other thing is, I think it's the best thing in the world that you can possibly worry about. You know, there is somebody in your neighborhood who is so crazy, they will poison little children at random. 
but they are so tightly wrapped, they only do this one night a year. <laughs> yeah, you can manage trick-or-treating however you want to manage it. You can tell your kids they can't go trick-or-treating. They can go to the mall. They have to go with you. You can only go to the houses of people you know. You can trunk or treat in the church parking lot, whatever you think you need to do to keep your kids safe. And then November 1st, the family gathers around the breakfast table, and you count noses, and everybody's there, and you can go... Phew, you know, we don't have to worry about that for another 364 days. It's a great thing to be worried about. It's a very manageable fear. It's kind of the difference between things that are spooky and things that are scary. Something that's spooky is this sort of like fear of something that isn't really going to happen. And what's scary is like your kid getting hit by a car when they cross the street. Right. Which really could happen. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. Right. And, you know, the, the whole point of Halloween, of course, is that it's it's supposed to be spooky. And most of us have stopped believing in ghosts and goblins, but we believe in criminals. And so we've just transformed the old Halloween threat into a more modern, more plausible version. That gives us a little thrill as we go around risking our lives and picking up treats. The clip you just heard was from my friends over at The New Republic, and the show's called The Politics of Everything. The show's hosts are TNR's literary editor, Laura Marsh, and contributing writer, Alex Perrine. It explores the intersection of culture, politics, and media in bi-weekly interviews with scholars and journalists. And recently, besides that great episode that we just heard a clip from about Halloween candy, they also just had a conversation about the fear of the 1970s that I think is worth your time. With addressing inflation at the top of many people's priority lists, lots of people are looking back to the inflation of the 1970s and drawing lots of wrong conclusions about the current state of our labor market and using the fear of the 70s as another excuse to hurt workers. It's an informative conversation. Definitely check that out and then subscribe for more. You can find The Politics of Everything wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Just a year before the Manson murders, Rosemary's Baby had been released, a horror film about a young woman's disturbing run-in with a cult of devil worshippers run by her landlords who secretly impregnate her with the child of Satan. It was directed by Roman Polanski, who at the time was married to actress Sharon Tate, the most famous victim of the Manson family who was stabbed brutally while pregnant with Polanski's baby that very next year. The story was an eerie coincidence that some believed was not a coincidence at all, but some kind of proof of the dangers of occult filmmaking. Four years later, The Exorcist, a film about the demonic possession of a young girl and a priest's attempt at helping her and her family, terrified America, producing true fits of fainting and vomiting. I fainted like ten minutes after the first beginning of the movie. I passed out. In, in about the first half hour, yeah. Oh. oh, God, I can't believe it. I'm just nervous. Famous scenes include the young girl puking violently, her head turning all the way around, and of course, most shocking of all to delicate sensibilities, violently masturbating with a cross while spitting out graphic blasphemies. Rumors soon spread about the film's very own demonic curse. During a screening in Rome, a storm surged around the theater as the audience filed inside. Shortly after, a giant 400-year-old cross on top of a nearby church was struck by lightning, causing it to fall dramatically into the plaza below. An extra in the film, Paul Bateson, would go on to become a serial killer, murdering six men. Mysterious deaths seemed associated with the cast. Objects would move on their own, 
phones would fall off the hook. Late in the filming, the exorcist hired a real exorcist to cleanse the studio. All these unexplained events led credence to the idea that satanic films could actually hold real satanic power. The supernatural seemed to be showing itself in a pop culture that had rejected traditional values, and the growing superstitions of a nervous nation allowed fertile ground for religious hucksters to make some serious money. I got saved in 1966. I have a three-inch scar on my wrist where my friends used to cut my arm and bleed my blood into a cup and mix it with wine and urine and drink it for communion to Satan. I was involved as deeply as you can get. 70s Christian comedian Mike Warnke looked a little more flamboyantly rock and roll than his Christian contemporaries, sporting a single dangly earring and long curly hair. After sharing his testimony on stage, he published his memoir, The Satan Seller, in 1973, in which he goes from orphaned teenage drug addict to satanic high priest to evangelical convert. This book has it all. Child sacrifices, orgies, kidnapping, ritual murder, and magic spells. He even dedicates a few pages to the fourth level of working professional Satanists. That's right, the Illuminati. Thanks, Mike. And with that, the idea that there was a secret network of underground Satanists became a best-selling Christian sensation, and Mike, the trusted authority. So, if this book is indeed the truth, Mike Wernke publicly admitted to assisting in several murders, kidnappings, drug trafficking, and brutal sexual assaults, including one where he commands his friends to kidnap a woman and then stomp on her hands until she agrees to have sex with the members of his coven. But of course, at the end of the book, he is born again, and through the Holy Spirit is forgiven for all his crimes. The woman I just mentioned, well, she runs up to Mike in the street to tell him how much she loves him and forgives him because she herself has been born again. Mike then goes on to marry his childhood sweetheart, Sue, but then tries to strangle her to death in the night, and in one dramatic scene, Sue finally casts away the demons forever. All is forgiven with no legal ramifications, no rehabs, no therapy, no discernible change except for, of course, the Holy Spirit. Then the couple, wholly healed and hella holy and ready to influence the masses, start their own popular ministry to spread these very socially responsible and emotionally healthy messages. The Satan Seller was not fully debunked until 1991, when it was revealed through an expose in the Christian magazine Cornerstone that Mike's family and friends stated on record that during the time of the alleged satanic cult activity, Mike was a clean-cut young Christian, one who only hung out with other Christian students. At the time, he claimed to have bleach-blonde hair and six-inch black fingernails. At the time, he was allegedly drinking blood and eating pinky fingers. He was actually spending his time bowling, playing croquet, and eating ice cream sundaes down at the local soda fountain. But before the official debunking, Mike would appear as an expert not only on fundamentalist programs, but also on the most mainstream TV talk shows that existed, including Oprah, Larry King, and 2020, which all treated his outrageous story as indisputable fact. His ministry was forced to close its doors only a hundred days after the expose came out, and it was found that he was taking an $800,000 salary while claiming the ministry desperately needed more donations. 
Mike still swears that much of what he wrote was the truth, and the effect the book had essentially made that so anyway, at least in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, who connected the rock and roll image of Mike's past satanic self with a rising counterculture even scarier than the one that came before. There's two kind of parallel Halloween-themed fentanyl-related panics. There's number one, there's the the rainbow fentanyl that we've heard about for a few weeks now, if not a couple months, about rainbow color fentanyl meant to attract kids that they're going to hand out on Halloween. And then you had this airport bus where allegedly Whoppers and Skittles packages were being used to put fentanyl in them. Of course, this was not an end-user thing. They were not going to hand out the Whopper packages with fentanyl in them. That would obviously be somewhat unusual, not very effective in terms of poisoning people because you'd be like, what is this random pill doing in a Whopper bag? but is in fact was a sort of device to smuggle them in. So those are kind of the two big ones. This of course is a vibes story, right? Mm-hmm. These stories are being pushed out by county sheriff's departments who are all uniformly anti-democrat. I think that's pretty much fair to say. And police unions who vote for Republicans about 10 to 1, 9 to 1 depending on the election. And Republican media and Republican aligned media and Republican politicians running for Congress. We've heard everybody from U.S. House Representative candidate Ronnie Jackson, to Ken Buck, to Congresswoman Debbie Lesko, to Herschel Walker, who told Sean Hannity on his radio show, quote, Halloween is right around the corner right now. China, who's not our friend, is trying to dress fentanyl up to look like candy. (laughs) So we got to be very vigilant about that. Friends don't do that to other friends. That's right. Right. And so uh, every single news media outlet has uh, covered it. Uh, All the Sinclair broadcast stations, KSAN, KTIV, KFVS, KWTX, Yahoo News, News 9. WGN, WHAS, 11, CBS Nightly News, like an official, you know, sort of ostensibly centrist news outlet did this sensationalist report. Security check at LAX airport in Los Angeles led to a disturbing discovery. 12,000 suspected fentanyl pills were found inside what appeared to be bags and boxes of Skittles, Whoppers, and sweet tarts. The seizure of the deadly drugs prompted officials to warn parents to check their children's Halloween candy after trick-or-treating this year. CNN did something. Fox News has been running it nonstop. Obviously, this is a vibe story because, as we mentioned, there's kind of two things that dissect here. So I want to get to our guests, Zach. I want you to sort of chime in here. Start off, if you would, with the sort of second phase of this moral panic, which was the alleged fentanyl bust at LAX, kind of seemingly lending credibility to this idea that end users, children are going to get on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. By the way, if a child dies of a fentanyl overdose, this episode's not going to age well. <laughs> that is supposedly being given out to kids presumably while they're transporting these very expensive drugs, they forget, I guess, and then give the package to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Start with that (laughs) and the validity of that claim. I'll try my best without having a brain aneurysm. So Okay, please. I know it's hard. The most recent airport kerfuffle, the drugs happen to be hidden, concealed away in boxes of candy. And I think rewinding back just like a week or two before that, there was a huge media event around fentanyl found in boxes of Legos, which are also mm. fun things that children like. For children, right. So what's happening here is that like the media or the police or just everybody seemingly has no idea or is just totally incompetent at their jobs. Forget the fact that drugs are often smuggled in innocuous things that don't draw attention, like a box of candy, 
a box of Legos, or through ports of entry, they are in trucks full of avocados, tractor trailers, hauling limes. This is how drug trafficking works. They're not typically in a package marked drugs is what you're saying. Typically not. And So I should be very careful about guacamole at this point. Okay. <laughs> That's what I've now learned. That is how Trump would do it because he would have emails being like crime of the day. But everyone else who has half a brain cell typically masks drugs. That's the way smuggling works, right? Right. And we are talking about street fentanyl here. Like we're not talking about lab grade, pharmaceutically manufactured, FDA approved, stuff you get from a hospital or a doctor like this is bathtub gin style fentanyl like it's made somewhere off in probably a very rural part of mexico where there's barrels of chemicals and a big witch's stew of liquids and this gets turned into fentanyl and so to cross the border It goes through ports of entry and it's hidden in, it could be in anything. Literally, it could be hidden in anything. And so the fact that suddenly the concealment has become an object of doom, basically like titillating headlines. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so that's really that kind of second whole wave that you're talking about here. But with the LAX thing, what's remarkable is just how dumb this drug trafficker appears to be just sending pills through a carry-on. Like, Mm -hmm. that's bonkers because, well, A, TSA agents, they're mostly looking for, like, bombs and metal guns. Like, that's the stuff that triggers that alarm. So, to send 12,000 pills yeah. through airport security. Can you imagine that? Like walking through security with like a bag of like edibles or gummies or something like people get nervous and like ditch it. Right. Like this is a so brazen <laughs> to carry 12,000 pills through uh, security, but maybe the guy's really smart because they got away <laughs> or this whole thing is fake and who knows what the fuck happened. <laughs> right. Cause this is very much vibes, which is obviously the goal is that this is, What we're arguing in this episode and what I'm arguing in an upcoming piece, if it hasn't come out yet, it will soon, is that obviously this is being pushed out by sheriff's departments who are a hotbed of reaction and pro-Trump sentiment. I think that's fair to say. Sheriff's departments, even way more than police departments, which is wild when you think about it. That's saying a lot. Are bastions of Trumpist sort of politics and panic around drugs because the goal is to sort of say Halloween, drugs, October, two weeks before the midterms, week before the midterms. They want to kind of create this general sense of disarray. So the goal is to just put fentanyl and Halloween in the same headline because it's about vibes. And so just at the risk of self-plagiarizing, because I don't want to make this point twice, I'm actually going to read my tweet because that's really weird just because I- Do it. Yeah. So I said, in 2018, when a man was caught smuggling cocaine into Portugal using a fake butt, we didn't issue a warning to everyone who eats ass, which is a very (laughs) vulgar way of saying that Like I can't think of any other time which the device for the smuggling- has been presented as the device that's going to be go to some unsuspecting in you. I've never seen that before, right? Like you said, we have avocados, we have toaster ovens, we have coffee beans. We've never been like, watch your coffee after watching Beverly Hills Cop 2. Watch your coffee that's going to have cocaine. Beverly Hills Cop 1. One, <laughs> one, my friend. Was that one? I'm sorry. Yeah. I have never, ever seen that happen until this week where it's like that somehow the, these drug dealers are going to take what is, I assume, like $200,000 worth of fentanyl in some package and just like give it to Jimmy. Well, there's also the idea here that drug dealers are going to fake our kids out by dropping expensive drugs into Halloween candy. And then what? 
Like, what's that? Why is that possibly a good business practice? Like, none of this makes fucking sense. It is all based on panic. And to kind of make this even more official, like going beyond sheriff department panic, beyond cop panic, beyond political rhetoric, we saw in a U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, that's a DEA, press release on August 30th, DEA official Ann Milgram saying this, quote, Rainbow fentanyl, fentanyl pills and powder that come in a variety of bright colors, shapes, and sizes, is a deliberate effort by drug traffickers to drive addiction amongst kids and young adults, end quote. And so this is basically what was picked up on by everyone. Now, Chuck Schumer is uh, insisting that there be something like $300 million uh, dedicated to fighting rainbow fentanyl. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is warning about the dangers of rainbow fentanyl. He's calling for an additional $290 million in funding to help in this drug fight. Senator Schumer says more drug dealers are pushing brightly colored fentanyl to make it more appealing to young teens and children. So before we get any further, Zach, I'd love for you to talk to us about the kind of kernel of truth that then is allowed to pop into a full-blown mass panic, the kind of, you know, mass panic pipeline. So what's the real risk about fentanyl, right? It's a high-potency opioid. It is definitely responsible for many, many deaths. But talk to us about how that is then twisted and turned into this panic again and again from everything from cops touching a pill to what we're now seeing in the drug traffickers are out to get your suburban kids addicted to drugs. Right. So because this is like a Halloween special, we'll go with the kind of urban legend theory here. Cause like, this is a spooky story kind of a thing. It's a vibe like Adam's saying. And so in order for an urban legend or a scary story to have any pull in the real world, there has to be some actual horror happening in reality to draw us, to pull us in, to make us believe it. And the horror here in real life is that more than 100,000 people in the last year have died from drug overdoses. And these deaths are totally preventable. Like, these are needless tragic deaths and they don't need to be happening bad drug policy is no doubt producing so much of this mortality and all of that is being totally obscured by the rainbow fentanyl panic and the halloween candy scare stories and also with the police officers touching trace amounts of fentanyl and passing out the real harm in all these stories is completely obscured, hidden, unspoken, unnamed. And that's why like this stuff matters. And that's why I spend time going batshit crazy trying to issue correctives and talk about it. Because fentanyl is actually a serious crisis right now. And on the street, especially the drug market in various places is totally contaminated. If you're trying to use cocaine, right. you're trying to take a bump at a bar, that could very well just 
fucking end it for you. Mm. And that is new and scary and yeah. isn't really being metabolized or, or messaged around in any way. And so the DEA, especially here, they could be issuing all kinds of pertinent public health information. They could be issuing very useful harm reduction messaging to the public, telling people to use fentanyl test strips, telling people where to get naloxone. It's the opioid overdose antidote. It is how overdoses specifically from opioids get reversed. They reverse respiratory depression. They Naloxone knocks the opioid off of your receptor, allowing you to breathe again. So all of this information is not being communicated whatsoever. And instead, we're getting the cartels want to kill your children. There is a plot to poison the youth of America. And what do we need? A more militarized drug war. We need the sheriffs to audit your your child's candy this Halloween. Like, we're getting mm-hmm. totally batshit, useless directives. Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN, and I have been a customer of theirs for years, so I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with VPNs, they're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look, if all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of left. The satanic panic was, was basically a, a sort of conspiracy theory that uh, living amongst us in hiding in plain sight was a conspiracy of people who worship Satan and who do terrible things to children uh, for the sole purpose of of worshiping uh, Satan. In some versions of the conspiracy theory, they ritually abuse children to the point where their their mind forms a second personality, uh, a kind of split personality as a defense mechanism, so that the, the child doesn't even remember being abused. 
Uh, and they have this alternate personality who becomes a, a, a Satanist. A- and then another part of this conspiracy is that we have no evidence of the conspiracy because the Satanists are so powerful. They have infiltrated the police. They've infiltrated the media. And so weirdly, the lack of any evidence that this is happening is itself the evidence, right, that we are surrounded by a, a satanic conspiracy. Joseph is an academic now, but he played fantasy role-playing games growing up, which caused concern among a lot of the adults in his life. The most popular game at the time was Dungeons & Dragons, commonly called D&D. He writes about it in his book Dangerous Games, what the moral panic over role-playing games says about play, religion, and imagined worlds. When I grew up in in Texas in the 80s, it was sort of the height of the so-called satanic panic. And as a child, I met adults who believed that this game was something very dangerous that was connected to the occult and to murder and that might somehow result in me killing myself for some reason. And as a child, I knew that this was nonsense. And this was kind of my first suspicion that Uh, adults ran everything, but they didn't always necessarily know what they were talking about. Uh, So that's an interest that sort of stayed with me ever since. Tell me, Joseph, what is a fantasy role-playing game? So a fantasy role-playing game is a game where you pretend to be someone else. And there really isn't a hard line between children playing house and imitating their parents or playing cops and robbers on the schoolyard and a, a fantasy role-playing game. The only difference is that published games like Dungeons & Dragons have a lot more uh, rules and game mechanics. Uh, because if you've seen children playing cops and robbers, someone will say, I, I shot you. And someone will say, no, you, you didn't. You missed. And so the game mechanics are really just there to make sure everyone is in agreement about what's happening in this, this story that's being created. And what kind of mechanics are used in these games? Well, most people who have seen Dungeons and Dragons have seen the funny looking dice. And those dice were originally created to teach probabilities to children in mathematics classes. But there is a 20 sided die, an eight sided die, and, and, and so on. Uh, and other games use similar types of um, mechanisms that introduce random chance uh, so that no one knows quite exactly where the story is, is going to end up. Right. So, what was the opposition to you playing them? Like, why, what did the adults around you say to you? Well, it was always, you know, I have heard a story or I've, I've heard, right? no one was ever citing you know, studies or something like that, but they had heard rumors that these games were sort of so immersive that they caused a kind of psychotic break and that people forgot about the real world and forgot who they really were and sort of became their character forever and became a, a, basically became insane. Uh, so those were the kinds of urban legends that seemed to be fueling the, the panic, at least when I was a kid. Were there public figures who were saying this kind of thing? Absolutely. So in the, the 90s, a woman from Virginia named Patricia Pulling formed an organization called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, or BAD, and she, and of course, this was uh, based on a, a similar named groups like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, uh, that, were, that were popular in the 80s. And she began doing talk shows and presented herself as an expert on the dangers of the occult. She actually began holding uh, workshops for police departments, producing documents for the police to interrogate uh, teenagers who, who played Dungeons and Dragons. 
Uh, and at the height of this, people running for political office and their, their campaign platform was that if elected, they would make this game illegal. So this really was uh, something that people were very afraid of for a period in the 1980s. I'm, I'm interested about Patricia. What was her background? Patricia Pulling had a two-year associate's degree, so she really had very little formal education and often made claims you know, about things like statistics that were frankly embarrassing. So, for example, she said once that 8% of the town of Richmond, Virginia, were Satanists, and that caused a, a journalist to ask her, so there's more Satanists in Richmond than there are Methodists. How are you getting these numbers? And she said, well, 4% of the adults are Satanists and 4% of the children are Satanists. So that's 8% of the town, which of course is not how statistics work. But her son had committed suicide and her son had played Dungeons and Dragons uh, actually only ever for a few hours as part of his honors English program in high school. And the story that she came to tell was that that game had caused her son uh, to commit suicide. So her Authority came not from any formal expertise, but from her story as this bereaved mother who was trying to help uh, other mothers protect uh, their, their children where she wasn't able to. And that was very compelling to audiences in the 1980s. So, I mean, there is a tragic backstory to this opposition in a way. Is that where the moral concern came from? That, that's right. The other big case was uh, a, a boy named Dallas Egbert, uh, who disappeared from college, and his parents hired a detective named William Deere, who held a press conference and said, this child is basically in a fugue state. They've, they've lost their connection to reality, and they're wandering around somewhere, believing that they're in a fantasy role-playing game. Uh, this, of course, was not true. Uh, but Dallas Egbert eventually committed suicide as well. Uh, so you have these two suicides that uh, really don't have a satisfying explanation. And for some people, uh, the explanation that this game somehow caused the suicides uh, was perhaps comforting. Uh, the Republicans are running on transphobia. It is really a beginning to have material impact on people's lives not just trans kids. Uh, we see it impacting girls and women in women's sports and this and that, because now you have to prove that you're a woman. Do you have too many male hormones? Let's see your sexual organs. Of course, it's having devastating effect on, on trans kids. You've got in Michigan, other states, we've seen this uh, already pass where it is basically outlawing parents being able to provide gender-affirming care for their trans kids. Here is another example coming from the local ABC News affiliate in a Michigan high school. A student, her name was Evelyn Gonzalez, paints a mural for the local middle school. And you're not going to believe what happens next. And we begin tonight with the controversial painting by a Grant High School student. It's on a wall in the middle school building. Pause it. Right there, you know society has gone off the rails. Yeah. Keep keep it up. Keep keep it up there so that people can also see the controversial mural that's going on there. If you're in high school or elementary school, you're going to notice a lot of those like uh, icons and those figures and this and that because it's for kids stuff. 
but there's something very dark going on there, ladies and gentlemen. And the fundamentalists who live in that area are going to find it for you. Decode it vigilantly. It's on a wall in the middle school building, and tonight some parents complained to the school board about its messages. 13 On Your Side's Nate Belt was at tonight's meeting and has details. I put my art up there to make people feel welcomed. That's how Grant High School student Evelyn Gonzalez describes this mural. She painted it inside the middle school's Teen Health Center, and parents are concerned about some of its content. Now, this here is the mural in question. That was a hot topic tonight at the school board meeting here at Grant Middle School. Now, uh, this, some of the things that the parents were closely paying attention to included the trans flag on this T-shirt here, this symbol, which the artist says comes from a video game, as well as this symbol here, which she says is a Hispanic sign of protection. I feel like she did a really good job finding excuses to defend the things she put on. None of us are that stupid. Oh my God. Parents alleged the video game I got some bad news for you, lady. of Satan you. and that the hand symbol is demonic, with several even using the word witchcraft to describe it. That's not what I'm a part of. That's not what I'm trying to put out there. As for the transgender flag, one parent implied it's a sickness. When adults pretend things that are like real life, it's a mental illness. We need counselors. We need the medication that's going to help bipolar disorder fix their brains. With another saying it's discriminatory against Christian beliefs. We and our administration should uh, embrace that and get all of this hate material out of our schools because it is hate material. Not everybody was opposed to the mural. One parent was appalled by some of the words used. I am a conservative, right-wing, gun-loving American but I've never seen more bigoted people in my life. Ooh. And wants to see more acceptance in her community. We have an array of people in this little town. And I'll be the first one to support our Christian families. <clears throat> but we're not the only ones here. A student and friend of the artists who described themselves as queer says they were bullied throughout middle school and into high school. They say the mural makes them feel included. Maybe you should be more concerned with your children's behaviors instead of what art is on the wall. While some parents called for the mural to be removed or altered, Grant Public Schools' handbook includes a non-discriminatory policy, saying in part, any form of discrimination or harassment can be devastating to an individual's academic progress, social relationship, and or personal sense of self-worth. No decision was made on the future of the mural at Monday's meeting. In Grant's Nate Belt, 13 on your side. If you are under the impression that there has been some type of dramatic change in our culture where the trans ideology is taking over. You need to start getting out more and, wow. and start reading outside of the very narrow, either right wing or I don't know, contrarian circles that you're reading and see what's happening in the country. The, the people that spoke at that school board meeting could not have been more caricatures of the kind of person that you know is speaking against trans kids and like inclusion of non-white people in a school board meeting. And you just notice how worked up they get about their own projection. They've never seen something so hateful. Really? Are you looking in the mirror? Because that's how it feels. It's just amazing. The The... I mean, and they're, they, they probably, they, I'm sure that they hate her for a variety of reasons, probably due to her ethnicity, because 
the idea that you would feel righteous in going to a school meeting to critique a child's art piece of art on the side she's satanic and why she's satanic to her face in the nurse's office like you're deranged and and you're hateful because there's something about her that makes them feel like and of course probably the fact that there was a trans flag and the conditioning from conservative media but there's something about her too that makes them angrier there's there's the i looked up that like three finger hand eye symbol there's a wikipedia the hamsa is a palm-shaped amulet popular throughout north africa and in the middle east and is commonly used in jewelry and wall hangings depicting the open right hand an image recognized and used as a sign of protection many times throughout history the hamsa has been traditionally believed to protect to provide defense against the evil eye so actually right if this is doing anything it's protecting people from that uh, spooky thing and here's the other thing who cares right (laughs) yeah even if it was like this is how you open the portal for trans demons i'd be like well you know what let the kid express himself right (laughs) it's just a mural folks it's Uh, just a mural and And when the mural says stay healthy in the middle of it you know what healthy is code for it's questioning your gender yeah Mm. uh, yeah even if you've never done it before and of course all the furries up there there was like yeah the litter uh, box under uh, the yeah yeah i mean this is the demons think healthy means injecting that 5g vaccine this is the implications of even this like you know alarm of like i want to go back to when you know boys were boys and men were men and girls were girls i mean this is like literally they were parroting this stuff 30 50 60 years ago and all in the family for god's sakes and I know that, you know, 75% of our audience has no idea what I'm even talking about. But there was, like, they were doing sitcoms where they would parody this attitude 50 years ago. And it's coming back. We've just heard clips today, starting with Vox Quick Hits discussing the resurgence of satanic panic in modern conservatism. The Politics of Everything explained the rainbow fentanyl scare surrounding Halloween candy. American Hysteria looked back to some classic panics over The Exorcist and the book The Satan Seller. Citations Needed explained the terrible business model of giving kids fentanyl when they have no way to pay for it. Soul Search delved into the panic over fantasy games such as Dungeons and Dragons, and the Majority Report discussed the parent panic over a mural that some Christian parents deemed to be so inclusive that it was hateful to their hateful exclusionary beliefs. Of course, not all Christians agreed. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips that further explore two stories we heard mentioned today. The first from Today Explained, doing a deep dive on the Tylenol cyanide death that sparked modern fear of Halloween candy. On September 29th of 1982, seven people in the Chicago area took Tylenol that had been laced with cyanide. Uh, The acetaminophen that was in the capsules was poured out and potassium cyanide was put in its place and then put on the store shelves. He talked about all the different ways these deaths changed the way we live. And he told us, you're going to hear a lot about how this impacted Halloween. Halloween's changed forever. Prior to 1982, I don't think the parents went through the 
the candy. They just let the kids take it. But today, parents are going through, that's not wrapped, that's not wrapped, that's not good, you know. I'm sure they do. And the second from American Hysteria, diving in on the Michelle Remembers story of memories implanted in children under hypnosis. Recovered memory therapy has since been seriously questioned by scientists and psychologists alike, as it is extremely easy for therapists to help create false memories with suggestive techniques, even if they don't mean to. But the thorough debunking of Michelle Remembers and the techniques it involved hardly mattered to a freaked out public. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now, as promised, people have been panicking over policing gender norms in our culture for you know, pretty much all of time. And so I just wanted to share a few examples from the archives. Paul Ferry on Twitter put together a thread of article excerpts starting from just within the past couple of years and going back to the late 1800s. It's titled, A Brief History of Men Today Are Too Feminine and Women Too Masculine. So I'm just going to read through lots of examples because they're a hoot. Uh, skipping past a, a few most recent ones, going back to 2004, quote, it's a social evolution. There's even a new name for this category of guy, metrosexual. He's a man who's not afraid of Celine Dion or a little hair gel. And I, I just love the implication that, you know, manly men are afraid of Celine Dion. Uh, skipping past examples from 1997 and 84, now to 1977, living in high-rise apartment buildings helps make men effeminate. A man with no garden to dig or an opportunity to carry out masculine activities becomes passive and effeminate, helping his wife with her chores. Skipping past 65 and 50, going back to 1940, at the meeting of the American Medical Association, a speaker maintained that the American people are getting less vigorous, the men more feminine, and the women more masculine because we don't eat raw meat. Classic concern. I, I don't know why we don't bring that one back. Um, skipping again past 1934, 32, and 25. Here's the one from 1922. Feminine tendencies in masculine clothing were excoriated in Judge Carl Hawkins' court. Where is your vanity case, stormed the judge. All that is lacking in your makeup are some ruffles on your cuffs and a ribbon in your hair. And that was directed at a defendant who was then fined $25 when he admitted to executing a suggestive dance at a local dance hall. Skipping 1920 to 1910, if the American woman persists in her undue athletic sports, there will soon be little difference between the masculine and the feminine. Just as, because I know I'm reading the, the years by number, just keep in mind, that's 112 years ago that that was said, just to help wrap your mind around how long that argument is being made. And if you were to ask people today, when do you think men were men and women were women? They wouldn't say 112 years ago. They would say much, much more recently than that. And then the last one is from 1902. I think this is my favorite. I notice a certain style among young men in almost every locality, a style so repulsive and weak as to shock the intelligence of people, the hateful style of parting the hair in the middle. 
notice it whenever you please, and differ from me as you will, my observation is that nine young men out of every ten who part their hair in the middle are useless to the church and worthless to society. And then it goes on, and there are a couple more examples from the 1800s that I'm skipping past. And, and the same guy on Twitter also created a separate thread of articles, also going back uh, as far as 1894 with articles and, and excerpts of capitalists complaining incessantly that, quote, people just don't want to work anymore. It became an instant classic and went viral. And, and to wrap up, I'll, I'll just give one example, because it's the earliest one I can remember of having my gender norms policed. It was in third grade. I remember sitting in class in school and crossing one leg over the other. And another boy in class policed my behavior and told me that I was crossing my legs the way girls are supposed to. And he taught me the correct way of crossing my legs where, you know, only the ankle is on the knee. I think you'll know what I'm talking about. And I took that advice as, you know, whether it was totally legitimate and and I thought that that was like the best idea I had ever heard because it made so much sense. I don't think that was the thought that I had at the time, but it was mostly, I don't want boys to think I'm doing it wrong. And, and then, of course, I'm sure there was some like, the last thing I would want is to be doing something a girl is supposed to be doing. And so I maintained that behavior f for, you know, at least a decade beyond that time before I realized that it was bullshit. So I'm, I'm curious if people have stories, experiences of gender policing, it, you know, it could be from your childhood like mine was, or it could be from yesterday. Any interesting and illustrative stories you want to tell, I would love to hear them. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or the elections that just happened or anything else you like. Links to join are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com.